Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. ARK Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARK. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARK or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARK to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's ARK's FYI podcast. I'm an analyst focused on our next generation internet strategy and cryptocurrencies. And today I have with me guest host James Wang, who's also a formal ARK analyst and now full-time crypto aficionado. Um, We're super excited today because we are interviewing Do Kwan, the founder of the Terra blockchain and Terraform Labs. This conversation is pretty special and it it goes very in-depth very quickly. So we thought we'd record a a longer pre-show to give a a prelude to some of the things talked to in a primer so they're not, um, (laughs) so we don't lose everybody right off the bat. Um, So James, uh, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Frank. Super nice to chat. So excited that uh, you've joined ARC. Yeah, it's a, it's an exciting place to be and, and, and a really fun time to start. Why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about um, who is Doe and how um, did you come to um, making the introduction for him for the podcast? Yeah, Doe Kuang is a very interesting character in the crypto um, currency or, or blockchain space. He is the co-founder of a blockchain called the Terra blockchain. And Terra is roughly speaking, you know, there are thousands of blockchains in the world and Terra is like a top 30 blockchain right now by market capitalization. And, you know, Doe's background, he's, uh, he's Korean and um, he founded a company called Anyfi, which is a kind of wireless mesh network company uh, before Terraform Labs, where he currently resides. He was listed Forbes 30 under 30 as a Microsoft um, engineer, as well as Apple and studied computer science at Stanford. So he's like very, very technical background and worked on AI and and worked on um, networking protocols. But really, you know, he got into the blockchain space because he saw that in kind of the last era that there were a lot of ICO projects and and, um, a lot of kind of crypto projects that were mostly self-serving. It was like, you know, what's crypto good for? Well, crypto is good for trading with crypto. It's like this circular economy. And he thought that basically it was never going to cross over to the mainstream um, if you take this kind of mindset and that you really need to build kind of an outside-in mindset, which is what can crypto do for real people in the real world, for people who are not into blockchains and, and, and things like that. So that's kind of the perspective with which he started Terraform Labs. I guess the first project they launched, and it's, spall- it's kind of sprawled into many projects, is, is a blockchain called Terra, um, uh, which is... Uh, uh, which is actually, there are actually two tokens uh, underneath. There's the Terra stablecoin called uh, UST, and there is the uh, governance token for um, the Terra ecosystem called Luna. So Terra, Luna, Earth, and Moon are kind of this um, kind of two-sided uh, ecosystem for, for the whole blockchain. And if you zoom out, you know, where does this fit? Why are we talking about this particular blockchain? Well, one way to think about it is this is the only 
crypto project with real world users um, and users who are not like well who may not even know they're using it which is kind of how you want it to be right you want the technologies kind of melt away into the background their initial go-to-market plan was actually to target merchants and consumers in South Korea so they came out with this thing called Chai which is kind of this um, uh, kind of debit card and payment network that uh, on the back end uses the Terra blockchain what what is the benefit of using Terra on the back end um, the settlement time is dramatically faster and the fees are substantially lower. So um, typical credit card processing is like 2 to 3% fees. Using Terra on the back end, they bring it down to about 1%. Typical settlement times is um, 2 to 3, uh, many days potentially. Settlement means actually, you know, you're getting the money that your consumers supposedly paid you for. Um, and on Terra, the blockchain settles um, in basically a few seconds. So the merchants gets the money much quicker. So it's actually a real benefit. And they have about two and a half million people in South Korea who are users of the, the Chai card. So that's like a some percent of the Korean population. Like that's actual penetration. Whereas if you look at other kind of crypto protocols, yes, you have lots of fans using things like Bitcoin and Ethereum, but no, you know, real life person uses those protocols. So I think just like the most interesting thing for me is that they bootstrapped an actual commercial use case for this blockchain. In terms of kind of like where the Terra blockchain fits in the whole ecosystem and, and economy of, you know, hundreds of kind of blockchains that even people who are in the weeds can't keep track of. Um, very, very high level, you can think of uh, as there being three broad buckets um, in the 2021 landscape for blockchains. You have the Bitcoin ecosystem and all its kind of variations. Uh, and, you know, pre predominantly really today now it's Bitcoin. At one point, it was, you know, forking and there were different flavors. Those flavors still exist. Bitcoin Cash still exists. Rajaverse still pushing that. There's Bitcoin Satoshi Vision, which it's, you know, de debatable how serious of a project that is. Um, and there are Litecoin, which, you know, kind of a basic fork of Bitcoin. So there's the Bitcoin-based stuff. That's the kind of original set. There's the Ethereum ecosystem, which is everything that's built off Ethereum, which is probably the largest and most diverse ecosystem today. And there are some forks in there as well, but most of it is essentially built around Ethereum. And then there's the, call it the, the third generation blockchains that try to improve upon Ethereum. The Ethereum blockchain has some, it's faster than Bitcoin in terms of transaction count, but it's still quite limited and it's so popular now that that is congested. So a bunch of people are trying to build a better blockchain for what Ethereum does, which is basically being a platform for smart contracts. And that's kind of the third generation um, uh, approach and you have things there like Solana, things like Cosmos and Terra is one of those. Uh, and to be specific, it is an it is an implementation of one of the one of those based on the Cosmos ecosystem. So Cosmos is one of the kind of it builds itself as an internet of blockchains. And basically, it's kind of like an SDK. If you want to build a blockchain, you know, like you don't like any of the existing ones out there. You want to build your own, roll your own. You take Cosmos's SDK and you kind of can roll your own um, and and set the parameters and security in a way that you like it. So basically, Doe and his team at Terraform Labs took the Cosmos SDK and created the Terra blockchain. And now Terra is a kind of a top thirty blockchain in the world. It uses um, essentially kind of a proof of stake mechanism, which is where Ethereum is headed towards. So that's very, very high level kind of where it sits in the, in the kind of map. Yeah, that's, a, that's an awesome overview. And I think an important thing to 
highlight about Terra that helps it stand out for those what you call the third generation blockchains or of the proof of stake blockchains that aren't you know um, where Ethereum is headed is that um, Terra has two main coins. It has the Terra stable coins and it has Luna, uh, where you know Bitcoin has Bitcoin and Ethereum has Ether, the mono coin chains. Why does Terra have two coins and how has that helped it position itself kind of uniquely in this space and gain this adoption? Yeah, the key insight that Doe had in creating this kind of architecture um, was that the most, the best product market fit kind of product that's being produced out, the, out of the crypto economy is stable coins. Um, stable coins are crypto tokens whose value is pegged to national currencies. In this case, well, you know, in the case of like USDC or USDT, they're just one-to-one -one pegged to the US dollar. One stable coin equals one US dollar. And these are extremely useful in the crypto ecosystem. It's interesting because these have the opposite effect of everything that you believe is true about crypto, which is, oh my God, it's super volatile. And, you know, I can't hold it. I can't transact with it because the value changes from the time I pull out my phone. Uh, these stable coins are stable. And in many ways, uh, there are many use cases and, and people borrow and, and, and trade them. But in many ways, they basically make money highly programmable. Um, right now, when you when you have money kind of in your bank account, it's this like it's not a data type. It's not like this thing that just uh, exists in a programming language. It's a very special um I mean, it, it's represented that way, but underneath, it's still sitting on these traditional financial banking rails. Um, and when you, that, you can see that's the case because when you try to transfer money from, uh, you know, one person anywhere in the globe to another, you have to exchange a bunch of highly esoteric information about, you know, swift addresses, um, banking account numbers, and then it takes, you know, a number of days before both parties agree that that transaction that ha has happened. Um, and if you're doing some kind of like wire or, or ACH and, and uh, it's, it's in between the two to three days, you have this just like, like, what is going on? Is this like, is this happening? Is it, where is the state? There's no address. There's no like state web page you can check status on. Like this just in limbo state, right? That's because it's sitting on this, these antiquated rails. Um, stable coins basically turn what is this old money on old rails into these tokens in Ethereum's case, in Ethereum's case, ERC twenty tokens, um, standardized little packets of software, smart contracts um, on the blockchain, and then you can send them at the speed of basically email or text messages. All of a sudden, right? It's now actually elevated, moved all the way up the stack into these specialized, highly abstracted pieces of software, and you can just shoot them around like packets. And basically, what that means is you can basically send a million dollars point to point, country to country on Earth. Uh, it will arrive in three minutes. The transaction fee will be five dollars for any amount. It does not. It does not care, right? So it's, it's, it turns money into this traditional foreign uh, sovereign currencies into into like into actual software bits, and it, it, it travels with that speed, and it's that programmable. So, um, do, like stable coins are a huge part of the crypto economy. It started off with one or two UST. Now there are like dozens of stable coins, and, and they're extremely useful. So, UST or the Terra kind of US dollar is the stable coin of the Terra Luna ecosystem. And they don't do just one; they they have uh, they do a basket of currencies. So euros and, and, and Korea won uh, is part of that. And the reason why they want uh, there's two. Um, uh, blockchains or one blockchain but two tokens inside this ecosystem is their whole goal 
is to get maximum adoption of the stablecoin, the UST. Um, when there's maximum adoption, the more adoption you can get for this coin, the more stable it actually becomes because the kind of the amount of usage in the ecosystem kind of creates a stability for the price peg. Whereas if you're thinly traded, it just it's it's very hard to maintain peg. Um, and essentially, there's a relationship between UST and Luna where burning one causes generation of another and vice versa. So they kind of balance each other out. Um, so Luna is effectively a stabilizing mechanism to make sure that the UST stays uh, stays up to peg. So that's why there's two. And like in, in crypto, there's this huge thought goes into kind of crypto economics or token design, which is like, yeah, like what is the economy of the underlying token that's that's um, how that's going to kind of grow or shrink over time and how that benefits token holders. And the general game plan here is basically let's get as much adoption of UST as possible, the stablecoin, use it for payments, use it for, you know, um, wages, use it as much as possible. And this will drive demand for UST. Um, when UST demand goes up, of course, the value of this stablecoin will, will want to go up because everyone's buying it. Um, and the way it, it uh, stays it um, stays in peg is uh, that the system will burn equivalent amounts of Luna. Um, and, and there's kind of this arbitrage that forces them to, to be stable. So adoption of UST um, is the game plan, and that will cause a reduction in the supply of Luna tokens. And Luna is the one that people are basically holding. This is the one that if you want to bet on the ecosystem, you basically kind of want to hold Luna and um, hope that, you know, Doe and, and the whole ecosystem around uh, Terra grows in a big way. That way, more people use UST. Luna gets burned. Burned means the supply is being reduced. It's almost like a share buyback. And therefore, the per unit value of Luna will increase, you know, benefiting the, the token holders. And this is a pretty unique solution, um, having two tokens and one sort of balances out the other uh, and also to mutual benefit. Uh, as demand for UST grows, uh, the value of Luna should increase. You know, on the downside, Luna helps absorb some of the volatility that would have been experienced in the stablecoin otherwise. Um, and, and Doe talks about this, but um, one of the differences in how UST achieves stability versus, um, you know, some of the alternatives on Ethereum like USDT or USDC or DAI um, is it has this kind of unique balancing mechanism. Um, the other approaches like UST, for example, that's uh, Tether, USDT is Tether. Tether, the organization, centrally holds uh, one US dollar supposedly for every USDT that's minted. Uh, and so you have this promise that uh, if you ever want to exchange a USDT, token for an actual physical dollar, you can go to tether the company and change it, uh, exchange it for a dollar. And this um, is, is efficient, but it also has risks um, that you're dependent on that company to have all the dollars that they say they have backing up the tokens that they've minted. And you also have the potential risk of uh, seizure of assets. Um, and, and, you know, if assets are seized, the underlying tokens inherently lose a lot of value. The other approach is algorithmic stablecoins. And, and UST, the Tether token, is one of those. The, the other and kind of like the first is on Ethereum called DAI. Um, and DAI works in a similar mechanism where you uh, post collateral and you can mint DAI. But one of the assumptions here is that you are um, taking on leverage to mint this DAI token. And so it can achieve stability and it's proven that absolutely. Um, but it is somewhat based on the assumption of a demand for leverage. 
And so what Doe's thought of Terra is by creating this mechanism of, of an exchange and a, a burn of one to create the other, uh, you remove the need to be based on an assumption of a demand for leverage, um, which I think is a really neat solution to that problem. Exactly. And it, it really increases the capacity. Um, DAI as, as OG stablecoin, it's, it's so popular that it often runs out of supply. Like there's no more DAI to be created. Uh, there are hard limits and they have to go through this voting process to increase it. And, and I think, you know, don't want it to create a more scalable st- stablecoin, which is kind of the idea behind UST. Yeah. And it's, it's shown it's able to scale pretty quickly. I think launching in December, it has reached 2 billion in Terra issued already. Um, in, in just a few months. Yes, and it's it's possible. I think it's his aspiration that it, it will eclipse the die stablecoin in in, uh, in volume sometime this year. So that's probably a good time to transition. How can Terra actually be used? You mentioned the Chai payment network is is kind of the first use case um, that Terraform Labs had created to essentially show the utility of the Terra blockchain. Um, what are some of the newer applications that are that are coming out that take advantage of this underlying network? Yeah, so it's helpful to visualize these blockchains as there's a foundational layer and there are apps on top, just like any platform, right? And um, on Terra, they've been basically trying to bootstrap demand for, for its own blockchain. And, and they've created two kind of first-party applications, if you will, and there are third-party applications as well. The two first-party applications that they've built um, are called Mirror and Anchor. Mirror is very interesting. Mirror is a synthetic asset um, minting and trading platform. So a synthetic asset in this case is an asset issued on the blockchain that mirrors, that's hence the name, mirrors the price movement of uh, real world assets. And like famously, they launched around the time of the whole um, GameStop uh, debacle. And, you know, people wanted to trade GameStop. So Basically, they made GME shares available as a uh, synthetic asset on the Mirror blockchain. Since then, other assets have been added, Tesla, Amazon, Twitter. Pretty much these U.S., like popular U.S. tech stocks have all been added because, you know, they're very accessible, of course, to U.S. investors. But if you're an investor outside of the U.S., it takes a lot more steps to get access to, especially if you're in like a more of a developing country. So um, all these stocks have an a equivalent um mirror or synthetic version on this on the mirror block on the mirror protocol which works on the terra blockchain um and it's uh, it just the, the the name is just is just m and then that so m tesla m twitter m amazon and uh the price movements basically track the underlying right and they will only update during u.s market hours and because it's on the blockchain it and the blockchain is on the internet you can buy these things um anywhere in the world where there's internet so it really elevates something that was stuck in geographical silos and within these in the in this case kind of stock exchanges to and shifts it to this international um, ip layer of the internet and so that it's completely equal access so once again this is another case where the terra blockchain creates real world users who have no interest otherwise in being crypto fanatics right so after they launched without much fanfare without much marketing People in Thailand started trading U.S. tech stocks, FANG stocks. Um, they couldn't get access to, you know, Schwab or anything. I'm sure, like, their local way of accessing it would be completely out of reach for most people. But they could just, you know, get on the Terra Station Wallet uh, uh, app and then start buying through a web app on, on Mirror Protocol 
uh, M Tesla, M Twitter, uh, you know, M Amazon, uh, and now basically the I think the number one country that uses Mirror Protocol is Thailand. Thai people love Fang stocks, so they uh, they created this. It's like complete organic use case, right? It's like they didn't even know Thailand was going to be the the most popular country. It just purely emerged out of thin air. So this is a real case of democratizing um, financial access. It's it's turning uh, balkanized local stock exchanges into uh, in, in basically as as easily accessible as um, as Twitter. And the other use case is something called Anchor. Uh, Anchor protocol is also built on Terra blockchain, and it's just a savings, a fixed income, a fixed uh, return, a fixed APY savings product. So we know with monetary policy right now, you can't get any returns off just a savings deposit. You get maybe 0.5%. You're just losing money versus inflation. Anchor offers 20% APY off cash deposits. Um, I've told this story to many people, and they just... They still look at me with this kind of disbelief. Um, the, the key thing is here is 20% fixed APY. There are, there are other kind of lending mechanisms on Ethereum and whatnot, that, uh, like Aave and Compound, that offer maybe 6 10%, but it's variable uh, and it's lower. Anchor is 20% fixed. And the important thing to note here is this is once again another use case. Uh, kind of, this is you know, crypto really growing up, is that you don't have to care or speculate with crypto prices for this to make sense to you. Like, if you try to tell someone to buy Bitcoin, you get a bunch of, you end up in a half hour discussion about risk and govern, you know, regulation and price volatility. To use Anchor, you do not need to buy any fluctuating asset like Bitcoin or Ethereum. You just take your cash from a bank account, convert it to a stable coin, uh, which is by definition stable, in this case, UST, Terra Dollar. It's always about 99 cents to a dollar or one. Per U.S. dollar, and then you just deposit the UST into the Anchor protocol. Um, all of this takes, I don't know, ten minutes. If you've never done it before, it takes like ten seconds. If you've done it before, uh, and effectively you've taken real money, not taken on any volatility risk, deposited into this virtual bank, which is just a piece of software running on a blockchain, and immediately starts accruing twenty percent APY. Um, it accruals per block time. So basically when you refresh the browser in like 20 seconds, like 0.001 cent has been added to your balance. So uh, it is completely dynamically ticking by on, on, a, on its own cadence um, and you can withdraw the money anytime. So it's not like a, you know, a CD where it's like term deposit and you have these specific windows and restrictions on how many transactions you can do. This is just put money in, immediately starts accruing 20, 20%. And uh, anytime you feel like it, you can take it out. And never at this whole, uh, along this journey, do you have to, you know, think about, oh my God, what is the price of Ethereum? What is the price of Luna? Is it up or down today? None of that stuff. So savings protocol and the way that, you know, Dove uh, kind of pitches his product is, he, he, he says, this is like, this is the benchmark rate, um, <laughs> like equivalent to the federal funds rate, but for crypto. So it's like he just wants this to be the benchmark and eventually everyone will um, basically kind of fall in line with it. Of course, there's a complex, you, we can go on about where does the 20% yield comes from, but that, that's, that's the product. And, uh, and I can tell you that 20% is not a Ponzi. It does not come from new people's money that gets deposited in to feed the old people's money, which is what a Ponzi is. It's, a, it's basically a kind of equity issuance, but uh, that, that's essentially what the Anchor product is. And I think, you know, 
to state the obvious, many people, especially in the traditional world, but even in the crypto world, will say there's no way this is sustainable. There's no way this is legit. And we'll let Doe answer some of those questions in our conversation with him. But it is really interesting and really thought provoking, this use case they've created and also um, the way that they've focused on making it more mainstream, not just for crypto people to earn, you know, 150% leverage yield farming on their highly speculative assets already. Um, you know, something that's pegged to a real world uh, dollar that you can, uh, you know, expect to earn a stable rate on, um, even if it's high, you know, right now by, you know, traditional standards is really interesting. Exactly. And, and we're seeing, um, you know, a lot of people become evangelists for, for Terra blockchain on Twitter. It's, it's, uh, it's a very attractive yield. Of course, I think people, I, you know, I've written about this in my newsletter. It's important to know that these are these have completely different risk profiles to a CD. I mean, people compare them to, to bank deposits, but of course they're not the same as bank deposits in terms of safety and, and, um, and risk. They're definitionally higher risk, right? The only law in investing is that returns tra- are proportional to risk. And 20% APY is not you know, the same as putting your money in, in chase. So people should definitely learn what those risks are. Um, but that said, you know, I think Anchor is... Let's see. Uh, I'm just going to check the latest numbers on, on where they are. Uh, so total deposits today has reached $271 million. So that's how much people in aggregate have put into this protocol. Uh, DeFi as a whole on Ethereum is like between you know 50 to $80 billion. So you can tell that these Ethereum is still the dominant place where people are using it for this kind of new money purposes. But even here on a kind of more esoteric or third generation blockchain um it's accumulating you know dollar amounts that's quickly approaching a billion and and it's still really early i think anchor just launched you know in the past month um yeah that that's the crazy bit all this stuff is like weeks old sometimes that's also why you should not put your life savings in it because you know you know it's it's not tested banks have been tested through thick and thin depressions and booms right and this is just well we're in the middle of a crypto bull market and yeah they're a couple hundred million dollars in but it's uh it's it's definitely uh it's, it's, it still has to be i think battle tested absolutely and, and the pace of innovation is you know it's hard to keep up with with terra alone no less the broader crypto ecosystem uh and there's a lot of projects in the pipeline for terra is there anything we should touch on specifically before we dive into the conversation with doe i think just getting a good high level map is is kind of important um we yeah keep these keep these names in mind because we, we we jump very quickly in like the idea of this conversation was we doe does a lot of interviews and i wanted to make sure that he get he gets some new questions rather than just tell the same old story so we go very deep very quickly um but yeah just remember like they have this blockchain called terra the the token that represents the value of it is called luna um, they have the savings product called Anchor, where you can get 20% fixed returns. And they're working on an insurance product to, to protect those returns since there's no FDIC, right? And that's still work in progress. It's called Ozone. There's so many names, right? They have uh, this other thing, which is like a, almost like a blockchain uh, stock exchange that tracks uh, real-world assets called Mirror. It's Mirror's kind of real-world assets. Uh, and Chai is their mobile wallet thing. So uh, it's like, it's, it's the rough ecosystem. They're out of South Korea. Um, and, uh, and their goal of this whole thing is to get adoption for their stable coin, which is called UST or US Terra coin. Awesome. 
So without further ado, let's dive into our conversation with Do Kwon. Do, with Terraform Labs, you've built one of the top 30 most valuable blockchains in the world. Um, and what's interesting is you built it, you know, most people talk about either Bitcoin or Ethereum blockchains uh, today or variations of those. But you've built an entire new, well, sort of a bl- new blockchain um, called the Terra blockchain based on the Cosmos uh, SDK. That's a very interesting design choice. And I think you've reached really, really great success with this design choice. Um, how do you feel? Well, first, maybe how did you decide to make this design choice back in the day when you did? Um, how do you feel about it today? Yeah, so there's actually a lot of elegance to how Tendermint uh, is designed. So Tendermint is today the most widely used uh, delegated proof of stake consensus mechanism. Uh, it's used across uh, you know, a multitude of different projects that are building on top of the Cosmos SDK. But also a lot of sort of you know, new proof of stake mechanisms that came from it are sort of site variations on Tendermint. So uh, the design philosophy of how the Cosmos SDK and Tendermint is designed is frugality and simplicity. So uh, really all you're doing is that you're getting like a set of validators to vote on various types of blocks. And you know, like the Cosmos SDK is a state-of-the-art tool that allows people to build sovereign blockchains on top of that. So um, you know, not, not only weren't there as many options as uh, there are today when we were first starting to build out, but you know, to this day, I believe uh, the Cosmos SDK and Tendermint are uh, some of the most interesting technical stacks to build on top of. Could you have built it on top of Ethereum if you had decided back in the day? You know, the products at Parachip have a very strong retail focus. So for example, like for example, uh, our day-to-day uh, payments across our apps like Chai, uh, the average ticket size is maybe around 50 bucks. So the idea that, you know, one of those transactions could cost like 18, $19 just didn't make sense. Um, and of course, like it goes up and down, but you know, and Ethereum's block space is valuable because it's filled with whales like doing $10 million trades. It just wasn't compatible with uh, some of the products that we're building. Gotcha. And of course, at the time, Cosmos was the really the only plausible blockchain that can give you the flexibility to do this. Today, there are more options available. If you were starting Terraform Labs today and with the same objectives, would you still pick Cosmos or would you maybe consider Polkadot or another kind of technology? I, I would say even today, the Cosmos SDK is the only tool that's available to to ship sovereign blockchains very conveniently. So for example, like if you um, look at Polkadot, it has uh, shared security that you need to adopt. So you need to buy security from the main VLA chain. If you, uh, you know, want to maintain operations or for example, like uh, if you were to build on top of uh, Avalanche or Solana or uh, Ethereum, it's all the same, right? Like you, you still need to subscribe to the rules of the underlying blockchain to be able to do interesting things. And uh, I shipped pretty quickly, so I didn't want to wait for other people to get their stuff together, you know? <laughs> and I'd love to know a little bit about Terraform Labs. That's the umbrella company that's running everything, right? Right. How many um, people Yeah. How many people are you guys, and how, where is everyone dis- situated? Is it very distributed, and how is the company organized? Yeah, so, um, you know, Terraform Labs is more of, kind of like a very loose collection of companies that are building different things on top of the tech network. Um, so like, 
for example, we, we have sort of the main entity with, you know, the, the infrastructure teams and, you know, design and uh, support organizations and things like that, that help to uh, provide the necessary resources and maintain the tools to keep the Terra blockchain running. So this is about 50 people. Uh, our payment suite of apps like Chai and Import and, you know, Pay collectively is a little bit over 100 people at this point. And then there's, you know, other companies like Buzzlink or, uh, uh, or like Anchor and things like that, which also have uh, some people on their own, right? So I think everything combined, like maybe 150, 160 people, 170, yeah. Okay, that sounds about right. Cause you guys are doing a lot. It's hard to keep up with. And are there certain aspects of the business of Terraform Labs, the company that are starting to become decentralized and incorporating DAO-like concepts with the launch of some of the new platforms like Anchor and Mirror or core Terraform Labs functionality as well? Yeah, so, I, and that's like one of the big emphasis that we have at TFL. So like, for example, when employees join for the first time, I tell them that this is not a business. We don't make any money and we plan to dissolve at some point. So don't get too comfortable, <laughs> right? Um, so a lot of the newer projects that we launched like Anchor or Mirror, uh, these were more or less, you know, pretty fair launches, uh, I, I, I would say. So like Anchor, for instance, had some institutional investors, but uh, the, the way that things are structured is that the governance of the entire protocol is uh, managed by people that hold ANC, and there's a large distribution distribution of people that hold MIR and ANC tokens at this point. And then there's a community pool. Um, I think the Mirror community pool is about, I think it's like a billion dollars now. Uh, and then Anchor's community pool is a little bit less, but basically it gives developers the tools to apply for grants directly from the protocol. So it's interesting because Andreessen Horowitz just raised like a billion dollar fund, but you could, in, instead of like trying to get an email intro to let's say Mark Andreessen or like Ben Horowitz, you can pitch a protocol directly and, and then argue with different people in the community to be able to get this type of funding. And you can do this from Mirror or Anchor or, or from the Terra community pool directly. So a lot of that's been happening so far. So we've seen projects like, for example, local Terra, uh, which is sort of like a P2P exchange uh, to be able to uh, change Terra stablecoins for fiat across different places in the world. Uh, infrastructure types of plays like, uh, for example, Block Daemon, uh, sort of like a Zapper.fi type of interface called Mirror Market. And uh, yeah, a lot of the new projects that are building on top of Terra, a lot of which we're just not that aware of, have been funded directly by the protocol from the community pool. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because one of the things that like came out to me when I read the Terra white paper was, you know, right from the beginning, there was a design for this growth focused fiscal policy. Has that been working as you expected in practice? Yeah, so now um, we have, I think a little bit over a billion dollars in the Terra community pool as well. And all of that just funded through burns over the last three months. So, um, for, for this billion dollars, like I'm about to make a proposal to swap all of that to UST and then put that into sort of a leveraged insurance protocol called Ozone, which can be used to protect lots of DeFi uh, applications that are coming out of Terra, right? So, uh, but the idea is that, you know, when synergy happens with, you know, specific type of money, like the US dollar, like the government, a centralized government decides to allocate it to fund different types of projects. But what's kind of fascinating about Terra is that it has the same seniors dynamics, but that seniors can be allocated to, uh, you know, different things by the will of the community. 
and you know it's going to be interesting because if you have a insurance protocol starting out with like a billion dollars in capital then that sort of outcompetes any type of mutual protocol out there in the market yeah that's really interesting um i think also the, you know the concept of insurance especially in these DeFi applications is really important as well i think the the security of insurance is maybe taken for granted in the centralized world but DeFi kind of you know can become the wild west very quickly and you know we've seen the emergence of nexus like emerge on ethereum to you know try to solve that problem is that the vision for this platform on um on terra and will it operate in a similar fashion it's a little bit different. So if you look at uh, mutual protocols on um, Ethereum, and I think Nexus is a pretty good example, like Cover Protocol is also pretty good. That, you know, there's two different sort of UX quirks that make, make it very difficult for these insurance tokens to be composed into DeFi. So one component is manual claims assessment, right? So a user has to manually go purchase a claim from Nexus, and then they need to manually file for a claim and then it's kind of like as if like the mutual or like the pooling of funds happens on the blockchain, but the process by which funds are doled out and collected is no different from a traditional insurance company, actually, because, you know, there's a set of people that are assessing your claims, assessing risk, and then deciding whether you get your money or not. So it's exactly the same. So once you have these manual components, it's very difficult for these insurance protocols or primitives to be composed directly into DeFi. But because, for example, like if I wanted to insure the UST token and I had a NUST, a, a version of UST that is insured by Nexus, I can't compose it into different protocols because I'm not sure if my claim is going to be fulfilled by Nexus or at what point. Right. Whereas if you had something that had claims that are automatically triggered and algorithmically so, then you can easily compose it into the DeFi stack, similar to you would do with, like, let's say, CDI or AUST from Anchor. I would say the second difference is that um, Ozone is designed to be leveraged uh, from day one. So the idea is that you would have, you know, let's say X amount of uh, insurance that's collateralizing, let's say 3X or 4X uh, the amount of risk in the system. And that, this is how all insurance funds work, right? Like you have a shared pool of risk that's collateralizing lots of different types of risk. And then you look at things like the correlation of risk and different things like that to make sure that uh, total failure situations almost never happen. Okay, we just jumped super deep into a pocket, which is cool. Um, but I think let's zoom out a little bit so people know what we're talking about. Um, the the product we are talking about the insure the product that we're trying talking about that we're going to insure here is a product uh, called Anchor, and Anchor is a um, call it savings uh, account. Uh, that you can get off the Terra blockchain. Think of it as your savings account. And instead of getting 0.5%, which is roughly what you can get in a you know, developed country these days, the interest rate on Anchor is 20%. And the cool thing here is you do not have to speculate or have exposure to a cryptocurrency when you do this. Normally, you try to tell people, hey, maybe you should buy a cryptocurrency. They're like, oh, it's too, too uh, volatile for me. But this is off national currencies that are pegged um, on, on as a token on the crypto on the blockchain. So you basically take call it USDC or UST. These are stable coins pegged to the dollar, no fluctuations, deposited into Anchor, and you get 20% APY, um, and it ticks up literally by the second. And and I know this because I use it. I just sometimes I just drink a cup of coffee and watch the number tick up. It's it's uh, very meditative. Um, so this product has been a huge hit um, for those who are into 
DeFi or decentralized finance. It's comparable to things like Yearn on the Ethereum blockchain. But the big thing about Anchor is it's fixed, 20% guaranteed. The other products tend to tend to be variable. Um, I've read the Anchor. We, we took turns reading white papers here, though. I read the Anchor white paper. Frank read the Terra white paper. But I read the Anchor white paper, uh, and and it you know it gives an account of how this uh, um, yield. Uh, is derived. I think there are two big questions. One is where does the yield come from, which you've explained many times. The yield comes from putting this money into staking positions, into proof-of-stake blockchains. Uh, it could be a variety of them, but today it's on Terra only, right? Or Luna only. Yeah. Well, so, like the core intuition is simple. So like, for example, like even if you put money into a bank, they're just not, they're, they're not printing more money to give to you. You're essentially participating in a lending market. So if you give your capital to a bank, the bank loans that money out to somebody else. And then it captures a borrow interest rate from people that are from the borrowers that are paying. And then it pays out a lending interest rate to you, uh, which is slightly worse. And then they capture the margin in between. So Anchor is pretty much the same. uh, But uh, the only difference here is that whenever users are borrowing money, they generally tend to post collateral. And this is what the rest of DeFi lending markets like Compound and Aave does. The problem now, though, is that the assets that are being put up for collateral bear no yield. So, for example, like if you're trying to take out a loan on, on Compound by posting ETH as collateral, all the protocol is doing is that that collateral is lying idle. The, 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 the protocol isn't putting that ETH to work in order to generate cash flows for you. But Anchor is different because the types of collateral that are accepted by the lending market are proof of stake tokens that have very positive cash flow. So for example, the Luna token has a staking yield of about 13, 13% or so, I think annualized. And then uh, Ethereum 2.0 has something north of uh, you know 10% or like Solana or like Atom. So uh, they have a fixed monetary policy in the emission of native tokens in order to uh, you know, help people that are con- contributing to the network security. So uh, what, what the Anchor Protocol does is that when you post uh, proof of stake tokens as collateral, it puts those tokens to work by staking it into various different blockchains and earning a staking yield on them. And that staking yield is then conferred to, to the lender in the form of a stable uh, deposit yield. So in some sense, like the explicit yield that the borrower is paying could actually be much less when you could be paying on the rest of DeFi, like Aave or Compound. But at the same time, the resultant yield that the lenders are getting is much, much higher, which is 20%. Right. So I guess this is the part I, that, that, that lost me, is that uh, thank you for walking through that. And I think clearly what the source of yield in the present the vision is to have Anchor accept collateral across many kinds of proof-of-stake blockchains. Right now, it's, it's the first implementation is, is Luna. Now, Luna right now yields 13%. So how is it that you can afford to give the borrower or the lender 20% right now? Where does the seven, the rest of the seven come from? Well, because the positions are over-collateralized, right? So in order to borrow $100 worth of stablecoin, you need to post at least $200 worth of Luna. So in some sense, if $200 worth of Luna is bearing 12% APR, then in that case, uh, adjusted for unit dollar lent out, uh, it's 24% or higher. 
I forgot the other half. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Now, when I um, when I borrow uh, UST, when I'm uh, using using Anchor, the APR there is um, uh, right now is at forty five percent as a borrower. Now, the, the, I guess this is the opposite use case. Now, normally when you borrow money, you um, you're charged an interest, but here I'm given a net positive APR. And this is because of the distributions uh, that I guess this is a liquidity mining uh, kind of reward happening. This is a separate issue, right? Right. Yeah. So the, the reason why you're getting a positive reward right now is because uh, the Anchor protocol hasn't finished distributing its governance tokens. So right now you're getting paid to borrow off of Anchor protocol in the form of ANC tokens. So and those emissions are going to continue uh, for some time uh, until such a point where Anchor's interchain includes different types of collateral besides Luna, things like Solana and Ethereum and Polkadot and Cosmos Atom. So it's going to be fun times for a while. Like, I guess if you hear about, a, like, if you imagine the, the, the mindset of a skeptic, which is, okay, this is a super cool bank. If I lend it money, I get 20%. If I borrow money, I get 40%. That just like, like the instant reaction, oh my God, it's a Ponzi scheme. This is ridiculous. There's free money, which both directions free money. I'm just trying to like find a way, find an intuitive explanation so that someone in that mindset can come, can come around to like, okay, this is a legitimate like business. Yeah. So, I mean, everybody's making money from this scheme, right? So for example, like, I guess Terraform Labs is losing money because we're giving away equity in the system that we built for free. And it wasn't built for free, right? It took a lot of hard work and, uh, you know, thinking and valuable IP to come into fruition. But like the goal is like, we really think about these new apps that are being built on top of Terra as features. And then we think about, you know, the company as really working on just the one core product, which is our stable coins. So, which is why we give away equity in all the things like Mirror and Anchor and all the things that we launch for free, uh, because it helps to bootstrap a, a ecosystem, a full-fledged ecosystem on top of Terra stablecoins. So, so I, I would say that the borrowers are making money, the lenders are making money, and Terraform Labs is probably losing billions of dollars. <laughs> Doe is just uh, going broke um, funding, bootstrapping this whole system. Okay, all right. I think I get it now. If I were to rephrase, it's... Um, you guys are obviously creating protocols out of thin air, but that's, you know, zero positive sum value creation, right? No different than creating a company. Um, instead of, and these are financial products, and in this case, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a basically a bank. It both lends and borrows. Um, when users lend you money in the form of UST, stablecoin, you are giving them interest that's really the staking rewards right now of Luna, which is a protocol you created and the market has valued roughly at, you know, what is it, $6 billion or so? Um, so you're basically diluting yourself uh, and, and issuing tokens that other people have valued, uh, that, you know, the market agrees has value to them and, and that's the perceived reward they get. And when people borrow from it, um, you're diluting another protocol called uh, ANC Anchor and, and issuing that as rewards. And that's how this is possible for now. Obviously, this can't be possible for infinity time. You, it, it, the idea is in the future, like the, the system will generate real value outside of just dilution and issuance, and that will sustain the system. Does that sound about right? Correct. Okay. Frank, anything you want to add? 
Yeah, I was going to say that's, I was thinking about how this system grows and particularly when thinking about proof of stake where in Terra, a large part of the rewards come from, um, ideally from transaction fees that are divided across all the Luna stakers. And let's say Anchor takes off and there's 10 billion or $100 billion deposited in Anchor because everybody wants this 20% yield. That will divide the fees that the Terra um, blockchain is giving off to stakers and lower the yield for everybody, which we'd expect in a mature market. But how do you see that dynamic playing out given that it's also true for Ethereum as well, as more ETH to, on ETH 2.0 is staked, the staking rewards also go down. Is this a system that's great in small scale, but the rewards look less and less attractive at larger scale? Well, so I, I think, um, you know, and it's, it's not entirely clear how all of this is gonna play out, but the way that I see this is, I think about Luna Collateral as playing only a very small part of the borrowing market in, in, in Anchor. So Anchor is designed to be an interchain savings protocol. And the idea is that you can post collateral in Luna, in Solana, Ethereum, and basically most of POS once we get around to it. Um, and then, yeah, you can borrow against your stake to do interesting things on the interchain. But uh, with Luna, we have a weird dynamic where we don't print more Luna in order to uh, reward stakers. All of it is sort of organic and based in transaction fees paid out in the Terra stablecoin. Um, but I think different blockchains have, uh, you know, different dynamics whereby it's just fixed monetary, uh, it's, it's fixed emission of the native tokens in order to justify staking. And then how many tokens are locked up and things like that have no consequence to that. Yeah. And, and how do you see, how's the roadmap for implementing those look? Because it, like you mentioned, there's different dynamics for each proof of stake um chain and then they're each at their own stages of development um you know eth 2.0 is at, on the beacon chain right now it's not extremely easy to do and um other chains are less mature than that how do you view this playing out and how how long is that roadmap to add these coins yeah i guess which one do you think is the first to to be plausibly added well so we're big supporters and uh you know uh, contributors and fans of the wormhole bridge. Uh, and then so we're, once that goes live in a couple of weeks, we'll be adding in, uh, you know, the STE staking derivative for ETH 2.0 that Lido Finance has built. And then uh, also a similar staking derivative construct uh, built, built by Lido as well on Solana. So these two will be the first to get added. And then once things like XCMP and IBC matures a little bit, we'll be adding in Polkadot and Cosmos. What is this wormhole bridge? Oh, it's a proof of authority bridge secured by, you know, like staking as a service validators. I think there's about 45 or so that are securing wormhole. I think this is, this is pretty interesting and, and is a larger Terra ecosystem um, concept. But I, I, I saw that like UST was launched as an, um, an interchain stablecoin. And interoperability has seemed to be a focus for Terra um, from the beginning. How do you view the importance of interoperability, particularly how it furthers, you know, as you said, Terra's goal to be, you know, the best money money can be? Yeah. So working on Terra is a little bit different from running like any other, let's say, DeFi app or Layer One blockchain. So uh, if you're running an algorithmic stablecoin, the key incentive to reward your stakers is. Number one, increase seniorage. So which means that you need to get your stable coins used very widely. And then number two, like you need to maximize transactions. 
So it's as if like you're running like a small economy where you're helping to create these different applications that's going to maximize the usage of your stable coins. And then as similar to how like in a developing country, the central government plays like a key role in standing up the initial corporations and businesses that's going to make the economy flourish. Um, and then working on foreign exports, right? So uh, this is what interoperability means in the context of Terra, right? So it's, it's, not, it's not so much that we value interoperability for interoperability's sake, which we do, but in fact, like bridging over UST uh, into ecosystems like Solana and Ethereum is kind of like maximizing that foreign exports. Like you want to get your stable coins into these ecosystems as much as possible, because it means like you've essentially increased adoption of your core product or sold more of your uh, core exports, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And this is actually something I'm trying to wrestle out today, but um, you know, Terra capture UST or the various Terra stable coins capture a transaction fee when they're used on Terra. When a when UST gets ported through a bridge over to Ethereum, how are those transaction fees captured and returned to the Luna stakers? Oh, uh, transaction fees are not captured, but for any high velocity transaction, people don't use that on Ethereum anyway. So it's for uh, generally like ticket sizes for UST on Ethereum are much, much larger than what you would see on the Terra side. So for example, like I think Mirror sees like a couple hundred thousands uh, monthly active users. Uh, and then I think a vast majority of them, is, especially in the long tail, all use it on the Terra blockchain. And then there's sort of whale orders that are agnostic to the gas fees uh, that use it on the Ethereum side. So in terms of ticket sizes, I think the ratio is maybe two to one or so Terra to Ethereum. But in terms of user numbers, it's not comparable. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's actually maybe a, a good question in terms of scalability and how how will UST and Terra break out of just the blockchain as it is now into more real world payment systems or other you know high velocity transactions? Um, and I think maybe it's a good time to transition to talk about Chai a little bit and some of the success there in terms of, and for those who don't know, um, Chai is a, a payment network built on top of Terra that's gaining, um, I think a lot of transaction and uh, attraction in Korea. And Don, I'm sure, I'm sure you can uh, speak more to that, but um, how has the existence of Terra and these stable coins made Chai possible and allowed it to gain the traction that it has in a relatively short amount of time? And if you could give us a, give us an update on Chai, I would love to know kind of what are the latest user metrics and and um, maybe potential rollout markets. Sure. Um, so to to give some really brief context, uh, when Terra first started, it sort of started as um sort of a vertical blockchain. So uh, it was designed to service one customer really well, and that was uh, the Chai payment service. So the idea was that we would you know take the Terra blockchain, wrap it up in uh, you know, a consumer facing product and attract millions and tens of millions of people to uh, transact using Terra stable coins across, you know, a number of different e-commerce and offline merchants. So to some extent, that vision has rolled out pretty well. Um, you know, today there's about 2.6, 2.7 million users that are using Chai. Uh, there's, you know, a Chai card, which is a top-up debit card that's been issued by Chai is one of the most popular uh, financial products that people want to get their hands on. There's about 200,000 people on the waiting list waiting to get their cards issued. So we, we can't print plastic fast enough to be able to service these users. Um, the company Chai also holds a payment gateway called Einports, uh, which is sort of like a Stripe-like 
SDK checkout kind of service that services around 1,700 different merchants in Korea and uh, just recently rolled out in Vietnam. Um, Sorry, which country? Cut out a bit. Vietnam, Vietnam. Yeah. No, okay. So it's a proof of concept with uh, four different merchants, but I, I think we should be doing more PR uh, around that soon. I would say the there's a couple of different levers uh, to Chai's growth. You know, at this stage, it's um, you know growing quickly, but at the same time, it's variegating into different business verticals, right? So uh, to give like a full blown strategic analysis of what makes Chai tick is kind of hard. But I think initially, it's just boiled down to uh, you know transaction fees and settlement times. So uh, the average payment service, like in the US, for instance, charges, let's say, 3% per transaction. And then it takes a few days to settle to each of the merchants, which is fine, because in the US, uh, merchants don't have as of a dire need to get working capital. But if you cross over into Asia, the dynamic changes completely. So the settlement networks still charge the 3% fee, but they still wait several different days in order to settle transactions. But the working capital of merchants in Asia is a lot tighter than what you would find in the US. So for example, like if you're like a cab driver in Singapore, like most cab drivers in Singapore accept cash and they don't accept credit cards. And the reason for that is because, well, like one of, part of it is fees, but they can't afford to wait several days for their fares to be settled to them because they need that money right away to be able to buy fuel for next day rides and to put food on their family's plates. Or for example, like if you're like an e-commerce merchant that is operating on like a 4% margin, and the uh, you know the credit card company wants to take let's say you negotiated like two point five percent then that's you really can't pay those fees because it, you know being able to cut down an additional percent is make or break for the business. So what Chai did really well is that in the beginning it sort of streamlined a lot of the settlement processes by using Terra stablecoins uh, to cut down fees from two point seven, which was a market rate, all the way down to one point one to one point three percent. Uh, depend, depending on type of industry and different type of merchant. So it became super popular, right? Because all the merchants wanted to route all the transactions over to Chai from their competition. So for example, all the different mobile apps started to highlight uh, why Chai is attractive on all their prime real estate, like the app splash screen, like they would have pop-ups that show up telling people to use Chai and then you get these benefits or gifts or stuff like that. And then like sort of a really interesting moment was when CU, which is the largest convenience store chain in Korea, uh, put up banners telling people to use Chai on all their 19,000 stores across the country. So you could literally walk any city block and then there would be a banner telling people to use Chai. And that was like free marketing. Whereas most payment apps took a very consumer-centric approach, we took a very merchant-centric approach. How do you make the unit economics and value propositions for settlements and fees make a lot of sense to the merchant? Just so I can visualize this, um... Before Chai, they're accepting, is Chai comparable to Visa, MasterCard? Like which layer is it comparable to? I would say, I, I would say it's part Visa, MasterCard, but then it also extends all the way down to the application layer, like Square Cash App. Okay. Now I'm the merchant. Prior to Chai, I'm, I have a, I don't know, I don't know what kind of a terminal they use, but whatever terminal that, that accepts credit card, debit card, um, do I, and merchant side, your biz dev team approaches me and say, support Chai. Like, it, it, did that happen or did the, did the terminal just upgrade itself to support Chai? What kind of integration has to happen at the merchant side for this to work? Yeah, so most of it is, uh, shall we say, 
uh, online merchants, but on the offline, you need to do a POS integration with whatever POS company that the merchant might be using in order to accept. Okay, I see. So after the fact, if someone walks in with Visa credit card, it still goes through the same settlement times, uh, same fees. But if it's Chai, it's this faster, like uh, seconds of settlement and then 1%-ish of fees. Is that right? Sure, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, so uh, kind of like an interesting story is that in the payment stack, uh, there's a set of intermediaries that basically take the settlement from the payment company and then just sends out wire transactions to all the merchants, right? So these... Uh, so this intermediary is called the value add network or VAN. And the funny thing, and it's an insider joke in the payments industry, is that VANs actually add no value. It's a single intermediary that has no value in the payment stack, right? That's that's freaking hilarious, right? It's the one company because plausibly the payment company, you know, adds some value. It, it does marketing, it develops tech, it develops security, it's responsible for chargebacks and compliance. The, the VAN literally does nothing. It's an anachronism from a time when they didn't have digitized banking. So people had to, you know, do a lot of like manual transfer checking and then like sitting in bank branches and things like that. But now that wires have been digitized, they do literally nothing. So there's a company, actually, I shouldn't name any companies, but there's a company with like 20 people in the staff that's about to IPO for over a billion dollars, which is a big deal in Korea. Right. But they literally do nothing. Right? Okay. This um, is Korea. It's it's also prevalent in a lot of Asian economies like Japan or you know very very similar uh, systems like have taken place. Uh, but simply by cutting out people that settle, and so for example, if you settle directly in stablecoin, or you offer to like legally transfer the balance in in stablecoin and settle via OTC, even if you did that, right? By cutting out this intermediary, you can do a lot of cost saving because like in payments, none of the cost is uh, made apparent to the consumer, all the fat gets built out in the back end and settlements and compliance, right? So once you're able to cut that stuff out, uh, you're able to save a lot of costs and time. Where does the remaining 1.2% of fees go to? Oh, so we would like net some costs uh, to perform some operational tasks and Chai would capture the margin. And from a consumer's perspective, that's the kind of the merchant benefit. From a consumer's perspective, what is the benefit of using Chai? Uh, so in the beginning, you know, Chai used to be pretty aggressive with doing a lot of promotions. So for example, it um, like put out like promotions and discounts and things like that. And then, um, you know, some of that was funded by, you know, community pool grants that Chai asked for from Terra. But, you know, these days they've pivoted to a honey-like model whereby they have a feature called Boost. Uh, and, and what Boost is, is basically it's a discovery page where people can find different types of deals and promotions that the merchant is funding directly. So it creates like a discovery funnel similar to like Honey or like uh, Rakuten, uh, whereby people can look at the different types of deals and if they like something, they go in and merchants uh, pay for promotions to be in that discovery. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think a lot of the uh, customer acquisition tools around sort of the uh, low spend uh, type of consumers, uh, people that are sort of like cherry picking for deals and promotions and then Chai creates that funnel between the merchant and the user to facilitate that. I think what's really interesting about the story of Chai is um, when thinking about now going into a digital wallet-like product, um, which is a, a concept that Max, Arcs fintech analyst, has done a ton of research in and something that we watch really closely. And when you look at um, how digital wallets have taken off in the US, like Cash App and Venmo, 
um, they were kind of customer first and gained a lot of users really quickly by adopting peer-to-peer -peer payments and, and certain things like that. Because Chai was able to, using Terra, kind of solve that transaction fee and settlement issue, they were able to go straight to the merchants and solve their problems first and are now going into the customers um, and able to, you know, have merchants offer deals and that's bringing on customers to use the digital wallet and the um, Chai card. Um, just an observation, but I think that's it's interesting how it's been flipped a bit in this in this scenario. Oh, and the consumer side is super competitive for payments. Like if you go to a supermarket in Indonesia, for instance, there's there's you know 30 different logos like behind the cashier. And then uh, you know, if there's like a bubble for how much in cashback each of these guys are offering. So like 20% cashback if you use like a Gojek pay, right? Uh, so it's like not possible to compete with that because these companies are burning billions and billions of dollars. Speaking of that, um, though, any um, updates on kind of where, uh, I guess, next steps for Chai in terms of maybe geography, any regions that you think would be good markets for it to move to next? Yeah, so I think right now uh, where, you know, from the perspective of, you know, Terra and I'm trying to dis distance myself as like a founder of Chai a little bit. But I think for Terra, what makes sense is for different payment companies to flourish in uh, different sort of meta geographies. So for example, I think it makes sense for, let's say, a payment service like Chai to be successful in Korea and a number of Southeast Asian countries. I think it's important for, you know, uh, a wallet like Alice to be very successful in the US, like Saturn to be successful in Europe, like Cash to be to take on Robinhood in the US. Because, you know, like with payments is very regulated and governments actually don't like it if you have a multinational company taking over payments in that region, which is why you never saw PayPal or like Alipay get a foothold in multiple different geographies at once. So like the way that I'm thinking about it is that likely in payments, there's always going to be regional players, similar to how in banks, there's regional players and just the reality that you're going to have to live with. In the interest of decentralization, I'm thinking that uh, Terraform Labs would play a more supporting role uh, to these different entities as they pop up in, in places across the world. Okay, and they'll all use Terra as the back end as kind of one unifying strategy. Some of these different wallets have different strategies for doing this, uh, but yeah, I, I think a lot of them would use in the back end, some of them in the front, yeah. The bankless guys cause this the, um... Uh, I think the DeFi Mohawk, uh, the, the DeFi mullet, it's like DeFi in the front, uh, what's it called? FinTech in the front and DeFi in the back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask um, how you see Terra's stable coins competing with something like USDC or DAI. I know, you know, there's the, there's the fundamental difference in issuance. USDC is the custodial approach where Circle has, you know, $1 backing every USDC that's minted and DAI is uh, created algorithmically with a different approach from Terra, but on Ethereum to accomplish the same end goal. Um, do you see these stable coins competing with Terra and, and how of course they do, but um, how do they and, and how do you see um, Terra's implementation as it compares to that? Um, it, it jogged my memory because I, I think Visa announced that they're piloting uh, some transaction settlements with USDC in the US. So I actually, I joked about this on Twitter yesterday, but um, you, like if regulators are allowing centralized regulated stable coins to be plugged into DeFi, you need to think about why, right? Uh, and the reality is, is that for, you know, USDC or Paxos, 
it's it's trivial for let's say you know like the fed or the fbi to tell these vendors to revert or freeze accounts um uh, revert revert transactions or to freeze accounts so it's actually no different from the traditional banking system and once a few of these freeze, freezes and seizures happen then they wouldn't be very composable into DeFi, in my opinion so right now none of that is priced in because none of those things have happened yet and in, i suspect that regulators are letting that happen because they want usdc and these regulated stable coins to be more integrated into DeFi, or maybe you know right now it's too small to matter but i think eventually most of liquidity and uh you know, like the centerpieces of DeFi need to constitute itself around decentralized stablecoins. And it's a question of whether, you know, DAI would be able to do it or newer stablecoins would be able to do it or whether USD would be able to do it. And I'm a big fan of DAI. I think it did something, it proved a phenomenal thesis, which is that you can get a decentralized stablecoin to be sort of the rallying call for the DeFi community. But it doesn't scale very well, unfortunately, because you need to pay more than, in order to mint a dollar's worth of stablecoin, you need to lock up more than a dollar's worth of collateral. And insofar as like the demand for leverage uh, does not persist, you cannot get to that amount of scale uh, for the DAI stablecoin. But with USD, you can. In order to mint a dollar's worth of stablecoin, you need to burn a dollar's worth of Luna. It's um, capital efficient, and you can get it to tens of billions of dollars a lot faster than you can with DAI. And we got to 2 billion, which is two apps, a uh, couple months. Um, I feel pretty confident that by the end of this year, we'll be uh, competing neck and neck with the guys like Tether and USDC and definitely the largest decentralized stablecoin. Yeah, the, gr the growth has been staggering. Um, I think one other source of competition is, is likely going to be central bank digital currencies. Um, how do you see that relationship with decentralized stablecoins? And um, I, I heard a... a a presentation by a, a, an analyst who covers banking and payments he has for a very long time. And uh, he proposed that governments will actually be incentivized to um, regulate against or even ban the use of decentralized stablecoins as they start to compete with central bank digital currencies. How do you, um, I guess, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, so first of all, if Stablecoins, if decentralized stablecoins can be effectively regulated, then maybe they weren't fully decentralized to begin with. But uh, I think the reason why Terra is decentralized and it's getting more decentralized still is because, you know, for example, if you try to shut down Libra, and then all, all Congress needs to do is to call Zuckerberg to a couple of congressional meetings and it gets shut down. But for me, like, I value Terraform Labs at like $10. Like, that's literally what we value the company at. So. Uh, you know, if they try to regulate us, we'll just shut it down and, you know, help the network in whatever best way we can. So um, that, that's one thing. Second thing is with CBDCs, I think it's going to be hugely beneficial to the world that you have central banks that are looking to digitize forms of money faster, right? And it's going to have huge implications. Like, for example, you're going to break a lot of the payment cartels and settlement cartels that have extracted rent uh, from, you know, backend settlement systems for such a long time once CBDCs come out, because at the very least, even if you have the same levers of censorship and control, you're going to have a lot more pro programmable ledgers that are highly more efficient and a lot more digitized than, than what you had before. So I think that's hugely beneficial. And that's one of the pressures that crypto has put on central banking 
to fundamentally change the way that we settle and transact with our money. But I don't think it's going to be a part of open programmable ledgers, at least in the short term, right? I think when CBDCs come out, it's going to come out with like the same set of attendant rules and like, you know, like the travel rule, KYC restrictions and things like that. And then if you have that, then it becomes very hard to compose into permissionless DeFi stacks as you can with decentralized stablecoins. So I think it's kind of like, it's, you know, I think these things are gonna coexist with some skirmishes in between, but I sort of think about these as separate innovations uh, suited to different people. So you mentioned the relationship between kind of Luna and Terra being kind of zero sum, one goes up, one goes down. Does, does that create its own limiting uh, limitations? I mean, for example, if UST supply is, is completely open-ended, do you ever run into a scenario where you run out of Luna? Yeah, so, well, I mean, this, this assumes that uh, people that are willing to price Luna in the open market uh, are going to do it at sort of like an infinite gradient, right? So uh, there's, you know, oh, like it assumes that- will, will offset that, bit, right? Yeah, so like technically as the supply of Luna keeps going down, like the unit price needs to keep going up. But insofar as there are a set of people, literally diamond hands, that are like not willing to set, sell Luna as it asymptotically converges to infinity, then it's the supply will never diminish, right? And then as it climbs and climbs, you're going to have more people capitulate. But um, you know, because of that premise, you're also going to have new people that that are that are entering. But one thing that I wanted to question though is that the Terra economy can't be expansionary at all times, right? Uh, it's, you know, we, we have a lot of uh, different apps that's going to make economic levers counter-cyclical, but at the same time, every economy has an expansionary phase and a contractionary phase, right? So it's, it's not like a up only kind of dynamic where the price of Luna goes up infinitely, right? It, it just doesn't work that way. You know, when UST is expanding very quickly, the price of Luna is likely going to go up because uh, the supply goes down. But in opposite situations where a lot of UST is being redeemed, and uh, then in that case, there's going to be more Luna that is being issued, and uh, that's likely going to lead to falling unit price. Okay, someone who is willing to go on the record to say it's not up only. This is in, this is oh, we're making progress. Kobe is not going to be happy, but hey, can't all be happy. Well, I'm a realist, so I'm trying very hard to make it up usually or up most of the time. <laughs> up <But>. usually. <laughs> Yeah. You mean? Um, cool. Let's switch to talk about. Uh, we've talked about Anchor. We've talked. Okay, one more question on Anchor. You know, the one of the most exciting use cases you mentioned before was that you know we have this incredible capability of twenty percent stable yields in the back end, and if you integrate that with an app like a consumer grade app in the front end, it's just going to be irresistible. How is that coming along? Any news? So, I think over the next six months or so, uh, most major crypto apps and services that you use are going to be front-ends that uh, use Anchor to become super-powered crypto banks, right? So the Anchor yield is going to be manifested in such a way to all the favorite places that um, one holds cryptocurrency or exchanges cryptocurrency and learns about cryptocurrency. So uh, in some sense, like by doing that, like you really do fulfill the mission of becoming the federal funds rate of crypto. Right. And um, I think what's also going to happen this year is that we're going to be integrating Anchor with a few uh, fintech apps that have nothing to do with crypto or just feeling experimental because like the allure of 20% yield is 
is too high. So I think we're going to see a few of those um, integrations that prove out the concept that this is viable. And then next year, I think, uh, in terms of traditional fintech, it's really going to scale. What do you think is the capacity, um, like liquidity capacity for this, for 20% yield? I mean, this is the, I mean, like for first principles would say this is basically the total staked assets in proof of stake chains, right? And that's right now in the teens of billions, probably. Like there is a limit to this, right? Like you can't put the whole world's balance sheet, like savings rate on this thing and get 20%. No, of course not. And, you know, you know, just to be fair, like all risk adjusted yields need to converge to the same. So if you had the entire world trying to jump on anchor, then it's going to converge to the LIBOR rate. Like it's, it's not, it's not magic, right? People are willing to exchange and lend money at similar rates if they believe that the risk is the same, but I think that's going to take a really long time. So if you had sort of savings banks and uh, fintech companies that are willing to put park, you know, tens of billions of AUM into anchor, uh, the rate will endure. And it's going to go down over time, right? As um, more people want to participate in proof of stake yields, either directly or indirectly through Anchor, the yields have to come down. Otherwise, you're just wasting money by printing. Like, I guess the end state that I see for Anchor is that people are still getting uh, fairly compensated for lending on money to private depository institutions or private protocols. Uh, well, well, public protocols, right? And that definitely is not 0.5%. It has to be something much, much higher. So Mirror is, um, uh, it's probably one of the most interesting projects. They're all interesting, but this one is, is, is fantastic. It's, it's basically a way to get exposure to a real world um, asset like Tesla stock price or um, you know, Amazon stock price uh, you know, on a crypto blockchain. And the use case is basically buying, I wrote a newsletter called you know, five use cases um, for, for crypto today. It's, it's basically a use case for buying or getting exposure to a stock that is not listed in your local stock exchange. And most of the desirable stocks are American stocks. So the popular stocks that are available on Mirror are things like Twitter and, and Amazon. Um, but in theory, I think you could have a, you know, a, a super hot IPO happen maybe in China or India and an American investor is like, oh, how can I buy that? And they can't. But once it's made available on Mirror, because Mirror is a block is, is on the blockchain, which is international, um, you can get that anywhere in the world. So Mirror just reached um, total value lock of $2 billion uh, in, in, in assets, uh, which just just over two and, and uh, basically is comparable in some days higher than synthetics, which is like the other um, major kind of protocol to create synthetic assets um, uh, that's on Ethereum. How do you feel about that progress? It seems like relative to hype, you know, Mirror is really under the radar. I mean, everyone talks about synthetics. It's an amazing story. It's got, you know, a $3 billion valuation. Mirror is about $600 million, um, and And TVL is, is about the same. Like, where do you think, uh, like, is there something that, is it just a marketing or perception issue? Is it because you get a discount because you're on the Terra blockchain? How do you feel about kind of the state of Mirror right now? Yeah, I mean, I think hype forms around things. Like, if you are resolved to make it happen. <laughs> so, um, and that, that just wasn't like a big area of focus uh, for us in Mirror. So in terms of the metrics, like there's like $2.4 billion locked up in Mirror, which is higher than any other synthetic, uh, synthetic protocol. Uh, daily trading volume oscillates anywhere between, you know, $60 million to 100 mil in terms of synthetic trading volume, which is, you know, miles above synthetics or, you know, any other comparable protocol. So I think it, it's well on its way. 
A couple of things that synthetics did really well is actually not the synthetic protocol, but they sort of uh, were the first to uh, try out concepts like yield farming, uh, you know, LP rewards on, on Uniswap at scale, did things like, uh, you know, curve incentives for their SUSD token. So I think they made some really valuable contributions to DeFi. So um, I, I think that combined with, you know, some of the innovative things that they did in, um, you know, synthetics and asset pegging and things like that, that's what leads the market to price it the way it is. But if you look at like synthetics.exchange or Quanta, like the synthetics are not really all that traded at all. Like with the exception of like uh, synth ETH and a couple of different pairs, like if you look at the long tail, the transaction volume for most of these things is zero. And um, that's because of a couple of reasons like gas fees and Ethereum are really high, but it's because also like the unit economics of being, of trading on synthetics is really hard to compute. You're actually not trading against the rest of NASDAQ. You're trading against other traders in the synthetics ecosystem. So you set up fundamentally competitive dynamics that are not cooperative. Um, and near is much newer. It's like, if you think about it, it's only five months old. So uh, I, I think it's doing pretty well so far. Looking forward to growing even more. Now you introduced kind of version two of Mirror Protocol. That's launching, I believe, this month. Um, could you maybe give a recap of what are the big changes there? Lots of changes actually, but the the so, sort of like the main disincentive uh, for V1 was that uh, you know like the downward pegging was pretty straightforward to reason out why, why M assets wouldn't fall in price compared to the underlying because the positions are always over collateralized, but it wasn't always clear why the upward peg should be held as well. So you saw M assets trading at a significant premium to whatever their underlying assets were uh, at lots of different uh, play, uh, uh, lots of different times, especially when markets were getting super volatile. So um, what V2 fixes is that it introduces short tokens, right? And then provides liquidity incentives uh, sort of rewards to swing between long tokens and short tokens in such a way to balance out the demand between longs and shorts. So in some sense, it's kind of like a type of perpetual swap contracts, but divided into two different asset classes. So that's going to allow mirrored assets to keep their peg very close to what the underlying prices are. So that you know, maybe some lost through this discussion because we're so deep in the weeds here. Um, mirror, the, the assets on mirror physically mirror the price movement of real world assets like Tesla, Twitter, Amazon. And the way they do that is by checking the real world price through a piece of software or protocol called a um, Oracle. And you ideally for this to work, you want the real world price and the mirrored price to be the same. And um, insofar as there's a spread, you know, it's, it's inefficient. So Doe is talking about basically version two shrinking that uh, that spread between the, the Oracle price and the actual real world price. Yeah. Or the traded price and the Oracle price. Which, which one is it actually? Uh, well, uh, the the Oracle price is the underlying price. The traded price is the price of the synthetic. So the goal is to reduce okay. the, the discrepancy between the two. Right. I see. The problem is not with Oracle. Oracle price is actually accurate. It's, it's the traded yes. price. Right. I see. Okay. And how do, just as a complete side, how do you feel about kind of the choice of using band protocol as the Oracle when everyone and their mother is, is using Chainlink right now? Well, we, we just didn't have a Chainlink integration uh, when we were first launching Mirror. And it's because we launched Mirror and, you know, things like Nebula and different things like things like that are coming out that 
lots of different Oracle providers are interested in supporting pair. But in the beginning, it, it just wasn't like an option for us to, to consider. Even five months ago? Five, well, so the Chainlink team is just building out their integration now. So I, they're just about done. But five months ago, it just wasn't a thing. Interesting. Like the way I hear about it, it's like they were, they've been doing this, like they were the de facto choice for years. I didn't realize that. Okay. I see. Yeah. So they cover crypto prices, but uh, it's, it's only recently because they saw things like uh, mirror rollout. They, they started to support uh, some assets on NASDAQ. I see. I see. Okay. That requires a specific integration. Right. And also they need to negotiate like licensing to be able to purchase data from various different data providers. And, yeah. Makes sense. Frank, anything you have? I want to go over, and I don't want to take us back, but I want to go over one more time how the mirrored asset keeps its peg. Because I was trying to explain this to somebody the other day, and I totally lost them. So I think it would it would be helpful to hear it from from you, Doe, how you know how you think is the most digestible way to explain it. But let's say in a scenario, you know, the U.S. market closes on Friday, and Tesla closes at a certain price. And on Saturday, Elon tweets and says, full self-driving is released. Everybody's giving the update tomorrow. And everybody can't buy Tesla on the closed US market. And they all go to Mir to buy Tesla. What happens? So uh, do, you, do, you, do you want me to talk about the specific peg pegging mechanism or like how the protocol would respond in this specific case when Elon goes crazy? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, let's start with... I think <laughs> Let's start with the pegging mechanism and then wrap it into this scenario. Yeah. So like how, how, how uh, M assets work is that it's kind of like structurally very similar to a CFD, uh, a contract for difference. So you post uh, collateral in the form of dollars uh, and then you issue a synthetic that is supposed to follow some price signal of some something. And then uh, if the price of the asset that you issued goes over some sort of collateralization ratio, then you get liquidated. So the idea is that you need to always maintain some collateral that is in excess of uh, the token that you, um, or the amount of value that, that you expect to secure. So essentially you're entering into a short position. So a crypto analog would be that mirror is actually like an inverse version of MakerDAO. In MakerDAO, you have a volatile collateral, which is Ethereum. And then you have a stable synthetic, which is the DAI stable coin. A mirror is the opposite. You have stable collateral, which is the UST token. And then you issue various different types of volatile synthetics. Right now, we're uh, adding different types of collateral like Luna and AUST. AUST in particular is interesting because as you're entering into a short, you can be earning 20% yield off of Anchor. So uh, that, that's like an interesting dynamic uh, that, that can be taken into play. But in any case, yes. So what happens when Elon, uh, when there's high volatility of stock prices during market close, right? So what happens in that situation is that mirrored assets when markets are closed, trade like any type of, uh, it, it floats freely in the market. So it's kind of like, as if, you know, the mirrored market becomes a futures market during uh, market closes when NASDAQ is not open. Uh, and then the idea is that if, once the market opens fresh and then the Tesla stock has gone berserk, like there will be a number of cascading liquidations that claims a bunch of collateral in order to buy back and burn Tesla tokens. So it's it's going to be haywire. But uh, insofar as like the collateralization ratio uh, is kept, uh, then in that case, things are going to be fine. So would it 
would that cause it to to basically lose peg, so to speak, during these during these closed um, hours when there's material news? There w- wouldn't be any conception of losing the peg because there's nothing to peg the price to when markets are closed, right? So, for example, like even today, there's there's um, I mean, it would be losing peg to the last traded price. Like it would develop yes, its own price. Correct. Is that what happens? Correct. I see. So it almost be like pre-hour or after hours trading in which it's like, you know, these select traders get access to other news flow where they can they can um, trade to new prices. Correct. I see. So this is almost like a, you know, this is another mechanism you can. Uh, it's like it's, it's like completely extended after hours trading for regular stocks, if you will, if you choose to use mirror as the as the way to to, to trade the stock. Right. Correct. Interesting. Frank, did you get what you needed? <laughs> yes, I think that helps. I would. It now makes me feel like I would be scared to issue um, Tesla on Mir <laughs> for fear of some after-hours news I'm not paying attention to. <laughs> right, but you'd feel comfortable like issuing something for, let's say, what's a really boring company? You don't have uh, boring SAP. On <laughs> yeah, but if it was like SAP, you'd be fine, right? Nothing's gonna happen to SAP. So let's talk about like one of the reason is like we don't have SAP is not on mirror because SAP is boring and people only, you know, this is a community driven for a asset to appear on mirror. It has to be voted by the community to to be whitelisted, white labeled, whitelisted, whitelisted. And I think you're trying to find ways to improve the governance process to encourage people to, to be more involved. Um, are there any specific changes there that's happening for version two? Yeah. So right now, uh, when people vote in governance, they're actually penalized. Because once you vote in a proposal, then your tokens are locked up for a week as the proposal is being deliberated. Whereas like, if you just take into governance and do nothing, then your tokens are liquid. So this is a huge problem, right? Because you are actively penalizing people that vote in governance because a lot can happen in a week for such a young protocol. Um, I, I do think that this issue would get resolved organically when like, locking up tokens for a week is, is no longer a big issue. But that is probably not in the short frame of things like today. For instance, so uh, in version two, what's changing is that uh, staking rewards are only going to people that participate in governance in some way during some period of time. So you need to be active governance participants in order to get staking rewards. And then secondly, once you stake into governance, everybody's locked up for a week. So the idea is that even if you actively vote on proposals, you're not being penalized for that action. So I think that should lead to more people taking an interest in the proposals that are coming up. Makes sense. Recently, Synthetics also launched kind of its versions of um, synthetic assets for stocks like FANG stocks. It seems like they're perhaps responding from a competitive side. Do you feel like like this is competition? And how do you feel about competitive di- dynamics versus just other protocols that would offer stock exposure in a, in a token format? It is interesting. But as I said, like the, I think the biggest problem with Synthetics is that you're, you're actually not creating tokens that are easily redeemable and tradable on different types of exchanges. So Mirror is, is supposed to be a synthetics protocol that hooks up its assets to different exchanges and the rest of the DeFi stack. So if you look up prices of, uh, let's say, Mcoin on, on Uniswap or PancakeSwap or Paraswap, it's all going to be tradable there. There's going to be liquidity. There's going to be uh, you know, prices that are pegged very closely to the underlying on all the three exchanges. But in synthetics, like you need sort of like a mechanism whereby people lock up lots of SNX to issue SUSD, and then you trade that on sort of a 
sort of a very closely associated exchange like Quanta and synthetics.exchange. Um, so like as you're trying to redeem these synthetics, you, you are not actually being rewarded for whatever the delta was between your entry price and the price of Apple when you're trying to exit. You, you're, you're getting rewarded pro rata to how, how better you've traded with the rest of the synthetics traders set uh, in the same time period. So if everybody made 20%, even if you made you know 18%, you could still be losing money. Uh, of course, there's like token emission incentives and things like that that are designed to keep it up, but that that's sort of like the price that you pay for for their mechanism. The Terra system has like so much in the works. It's like like the equivalent of ten other protocols happening at once, um, and they all have very interesting names like Nebula and, and Pylon and Ozone, Alice. You know, maybe it's best you pick one to talk about that you feel that maybe the the community there's you, there's a great lunatic community that's out there. Um, uh, digesting every piece of news, what do you feel like they should understand about what's coming in the next couple of months that's going to be interesting to them and, and you know, maybe provide an update there? So one thing that I wanted to clarify is, I, and I think there's this misconception, people think I just stay up all the time and, and shipping, you know, like 20 different protocols at once because I'm the only, like, um, a very visible person in, the, in, in TFL. So people think that we're a very small team and then it's just like me and like a couple of other guys like William that's doing everything, but it's definitely not the case. We have one of the best staff teams in crypto, at least for protocol teams. And then you have lots of these different protocol teams that are building different things. And some of those are subsidiaries of TFL and some of these are actually not related to us at all. So like Alice has nothing to do with me. I just, you know, gave her early advice and things like that, as, as well as things like Saturn and uh, Nebula, for, for instance, is something that I'm contributing to, but like the entity itself is not, you know, like a part of TFL. Okay, I did not appreciate that. Okay, so it's not one entity with all these little uh, satellite things. It's 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 literally just unrelated star systems, if you will. And sometimes you contribute the other way rather than all going to you. Yeah, and and like for Nebula, I don't really get anything. Like there's no economic gain, but it's kind of interesting to work on like an ETF protocol that's super interesting. And then I I think the team likes working with me. So let, let's talk about. Since you know Arc is an ETF shop, obviously, and you know we have an interest in ETFs, where did the idea of Nebula come from, and um, where is the team? Who leads it, and what state is the project right now? I think one of the things that we've started to notice, and you know, I think we can sort of commentate on what Warren Buffett said about how Robinhood incentivizes gambling. But I think another way of looking at it is sort of the ethos of diversification and you know, um, passive investing is perhaps a little bit less resonating with millennials today than it used to resonate with investors 20 years ago. Um, and what that means is that when, when, you know, young investors are investing into assets, they're not looking to invest in diversification. They're looking to invest in stories, right? Which is exactly why, you know, Tesla ran up the way they did. They're not buying into the balance sheet of Tesla. They're buying into the story that Elon Musk is looking to extend the longevity of the human race. And I think traditionally the way that ETFs have been designed are not marketed or constructed in such a way that best serves ways to invest into stories. And what that means is that, for example, like the Vanguard ETF is, is named after, you know, like money managers. It doesn't tell a story, right? Like the S&P 500, like most people, when they say hear S&P, they think it's like some economic indicator that, that you know, describes like how poor people are 
in like the US, right? So, but like imagine if you had sort of like an ETF that rebalances in accordance with a dynamic script, like let's say an Ethereum script or let's say a Terra CW20 script, instead of having to be manually uh, rebalanced every quarter simply in the interest of market cap, right? So for example, you can have a miscongeniality index that tracks the Twitter following of all the different companies uh, that the ETF is tracking. Uh, and then the idea is that the one with like the largest Twitter following gets the highest weight. Or for example, like you can have something called the next Doge, which is an ETF that holds a basket of a hundred different cryptocurrencies in equal weights. And when one of them starts to moon, let's say up above 50% in a single day, you dump everything and you just go into that one. Or you can do, you know, new is always better type of ETF, which uh, holds like a, a basket of the top 10 latest tech stocks to have listed on NASDAQ, right? And of course, like all of these things sound super stupid, but you can have, uh, you know, ETFs that, you know, make a lot more sense. Like for example, like the, the hipster index, which uh, is like a curated list of all the different uh, top hipster brands to have launched or, or IPO'd. Uh, so I, I think like the dimensions of what you can unlock with Nebula ETFs is much, much uh, wider than what you can do with traditional ETFs. So, I mean, in the ETF industry, there is this thing called smart beta, which is kind of the next evolution of just, you know, market cap wave, which is use some other factor than market cap to rebalance the, the ETF. It could be a momentum factor. It could be a balance sheet factor. It could be an ESG score, right? So this is, it sounds like this is taking that to, the, to a completely new level where you could, in theory, any input that you could get through a Oracle, you could basically use to feed the, the, the construction mechanism. When you say ETF, do you imagine these to be a basket of actual real world stocks mirrored versions, or do you imagine them to be uh, a basket of tokens? We actually don't call them ETFs in Nebula speak, and I don't think we're allowed to. We just call them clusters. Uh, as in Nebula is basically a cluster of stars, right? So we call them clusters. Instead of rebalancing, we, I think it's called star mixing or something like that. So uh, it's definitely different concepts. But yeah, I imagine like some of the ETFs would include M assets. I, I imagine some of them would include things like different types of yield, yield tokens. Some of them would just include bridged over cryptocurrencies. The possibilities are quite wide. But it sounds like it's really designed for tokens as a first citizen, since it's much harder to even import all the traditional assets over as correct as okay correct. That makes it's interesting it, it reminds me a lot of token sets on ethereum and you know being able to create um either a basket of assets with an allocation you choose and you can even you know actively manage it and adjust the allocations and i could issue um actually compliance probably wouldn't let me issue um but i theoretically could issue a token that represents the frank trading strategy tomorrow on token sets and i could set my basket of coins on eth and i can rebalance it and i could take a management fee on it um which is which is pretty interesting and then there's there's algorithmic ones like the eth 2x leverage that automatically implements a leverage strategy um is this kind of like that how is it different something else that you could do is you know for example there's a lending market coming to terra called mars protocol so you can loan out your Apple stock uh, or let's say your Luna and let's say your Solana on Mars. And then these tokens could start to earn a yield. 
And then you can take these sort of lending vouchers from Mars and then hook that up into a Nebula ETF. So in that case, like you can have an ETF of, you know, the top tokens that you want to hold, except it's earning an interest on lending markets along the way. So the number of tokens that you're holding appreciates over time. I, I mean, like the idea is that you, you expand the dimensions of what you can do with passive investing. You open up to the community to design different types of things that they can do. Uh, and then like you brand them in such a way that it resonates with the audience. I'm like, what exactly are you investing into? Now, for Mars, is this a uh, org under the Terraform Labs org, or is this kind of a separate thing as, as well, kind of nebula, like Nebula? Oh, for this one, I'm not even involved. Like, I, I just know what it is, but like, it's it's being run by completely different people. I see. I see. That's so interesting. I think within the Luna community, I, I, people assume there's there's a this is a conglomeration of all these assets, but it's it's actually good that these are uninvolved because it shows there's actual organic uptake, right? Yeah, I actually work on very few things. I, I work on like Mirror, Anchor, and it's loosely involved with Chai, and started to work on Nebula, and I guess I was okay. I guess I guess it's not like few things, but <laughs> definitely not, I'm not working on twenty different things at once. Just a few a few billion dollar projects. <laughs> <laughs> Though recently you were uh, teasing about working with a city um, on some maybe payments integration. Uh, do you have any anything you can tease or update there? Just look into the concept of regional currencies. I'll just say that. Regional currencies. Okay. All right. I'll let the lunatics figure that one out. Um, <laughs> and what other things should we talk about in, uh, in terms of roadmap that, that um, people should know? I think a couple of different things. So I, I, I say, I, I think Terraform Labs is sort of like in a weird position where it's playing both the role of consensus in the Ethereum ecosystem in 2017. And it also plays, let's say, uh, the role of most token foundations like the EF or let's say, um, you know, the Web3 Foundation. And sort of like the design choice that we've made is that we've been sort of very deliberate in uh, and very opinionated uh, for what types of apps could flourish on top of Terra. And then it's not so much that we're sort of uh, imposing our viewpoint on other people, but because we've had like a very singular focus on retail focused, uh, you know, finance in the beginning, a lot of the different apps that are being built on top of Terra are, are sort of aligned with that vision. And then they have like a very Starcraft and planetary meme to it as well. Like we didn't tell anyone to name their thing Saturn or Mars or, you know, like, uh, you know, like Pluto or different things like that. But like people are just naming uh, their things, you know, like that uh, because, you know, it aligns with the overall narrative and vision. Uh, I think there's going to be a, a number of very interesting entrepreneurs that are building hundreds of different applications on top of Terra. And I think about you're going to see about, you know, 50 or so launched this year uh, that tackle existing financial instruments in traditional finance and then leverage uh, either Terra stablecoins or anchor yield or you know, lending markets and different things like that to build better versions of these existing products on top of the Terra blockchain. So you're going to see a flourishing financial ecosystem on, on top of Terra that, that's hard to find in other DeFi ecosystems uh, and are sort of unique to us. Second thing is in terms of user experience, all of these different apps are going to start to speak a common design language. So one of the things that people you know, feel jarred by when they enter BSC or Ethereum is that all these different apps are different with different security profiles and uh, different design schemes and different user experiences 
which is good in the interest of decentralization. But also it's very difficult for the consumers to start to trust these institutions if they start to you know, enter the learning curve all over again every time that they use something new. So uh, in, in Terra, we're going to be coming up with something like, let's say something called Engineering Bay, which has you know, uh, app building and design kits whereby DeFi builders uh, coming into Terra for the first time can easily compose different apps that speak common design languages such that when users are you know, using Anchor or Mirror or you know, Nebula or Ozone, they're going to have a very similar look and feel as well as you know, initial user on-ramps so that they can get started and build trust with the institutions that are built on top of Terra in a much more easy and seamless kind of way. Um, and uh, this hasn't been tried in DeFi yet or, or in crypto. So it, it'll be interesting how like a community of different builders that subscribe to our different set of tools are going to be using it to build a unified user experience. And I'm very, looking, very much looking forward to that. Very cool. This would be like Material UI, but for actual exactly. blockchain project. Okay. Okay. And, and is anyone doing this? Is anyone thinking at a UX level and providing frameworks this way? I mean, most of the frameworks at a blockchain level. Yeah. So we're going to be building uh, like this sort of a design toolkit and design collective, if you will, with the IDEO. Uh, so, um, and they obviously have some expertise in that, especially with a lot of the designers starting to build up a strong interest in DeFi. So I guess if we have to come up with a, with a big picture question, I think we've talked a lot about all the ways Terra is growing super quickly and could be super successful. If we're looking you know, four or five years into the future and Terra is a failure, what is the biggest thing that you think could be the demise of Terra? Is it, is it regulation that some um, or a group of governments say, you know, either Terra specifically or this whole blockchain thing isn't going to work? Is it a better competitor comes along and takes share and does everything Terra does but better? Uh, or is it something else? So like in 2017, a lot of people used to think that for a blockchain project to succeed, you need to raise money, lots of money at a high valuation in order to succeed. And after working in the industry for the last three years, I don't think that's true. So you really, what makes a lot of these projects tick is whether they have a soul. And it's, it's really amorphous, right? It's, it's kind of really hard to explain. But back in the day when people were building on top of EOS, nobody wanted to build on EOS unless EOS gave you money. Like it just did not happen at all. Oh, it's uh, worse than you know, when, when EOS tried to give, there was, a, there was a foundation to give money to get developers. Like they couldn't even pay people to build apps for them. Exactly, exactly. But like for the ones that were building, they were only doing it because like EOS was like buying out all of your native, native tokens even before you had a token, right? which is what like Everpedia did. Uh, and you know, like you get cool, easy $30 million after a few months work, not bad. And that was like the only way to do it. So no matter how much money you have, uh, you really can't buy soul. And then like, you can't inspire, uh, sort of like a group of entrepreneurs to build really cool things. And, uh, like if we fail, uh, that's going to be, I, I think we're starting to, you know, build out a soul in the terror community now, like the strength of this community and then the people that are building on top of this, I think are. It's just incredible and you know what you see in the surface is probably just the tip of the iceberg but uh if we fail i think it's going to be because we we fail to keep that momentum going and that inspiration going and that can happen for like a number of different reasons yeah like what what keeps me up and excited at night is not the types of things that i'm going to be building over the next four to five years but uh you know like the community of builders that i'm going to be working with and the types of things that they can build 
that's going to be super exciting on top of Terra. A lot of folks I talk to would love to get into crypto and help with projects, but they feel they're not qualified or they have no blockchain experience, but they don't even know where to look. Like if you were, if you were pitching people to join kind of, Hey, help us build stuff. Like where do they find information and where are the jobs? Like how do they get involved in the Terra community? Yeah. So this is one of the advantages of, I think, working with Terra. Like I have, I parallel, I, I think I'm able to parallel process and, um, you know, spend more hours on working on things than most people. So for example, like Nebula or like, there's like a metaverse project that I'm working on now and some several different things where like, like if you want to build something cool and it resonates and it has actual use cases, I'm going to be actually putting in, you know, like boots on the ground and spending lots of time with you to be able to co-found this thing with you. And you don't have to pay me anything. And all you need to do is to slide into my DMs and then you know, like as long as we can agree on a product that's going to be super exciting, you get me for free. Awesome. That's that's great. They get you for free. What about someone more on grassroots? Is that maybe you want to contribute to documentation or work on UI designer? Like where is there a central place of maybe just opportunities um, uh, for various levels of commitment to to work on, on Terra projects? Yeah, so we're setting up such a pipeline now uh, where people can, you know, contribute to existing projects. But the easiest way to do it is to reach out to us. Uh, you know, like the Terra official Twitter is one way to do it. Reaching out to me directly is another way. And then, so like Nebula, the reason why it's cool, it's actually like people that are doing design and like people that are doing engineering, they're all sort of patchwork contributors, like OG contributors from the Terra community. So uh, yeah, it's just like literally just collected from Telegram chats and Discord. You know, it's to some extent similar for Ozone as well. So just reach out to us, you know, um, like no one here is qualified. That's the secret. So I'm sure I'm sure we can build really exciting things together. Awesome. All right, Doe. Last fun question. Do you still play StarCraft or watch StarCraft? StarCraft one or two? Well, I play StarCraft one Brood War. Uh, and I actually recently played uh, Tekken. Uh, so he's a he's one of the partners in Poly, Polychain. And in my life, I've never lost to a non-Korean. I've been playing since like 1998, but that guy's crazy. Like our APMs were both over 240. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was close, but he's, he's a good player. Sorry? And did you lose? Yeah, I lost, yeah. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah, I put up the match online as well. So, so. Okay, you need, you need to, um, you need to uh, put up a YouTube on that. I'm sure everyone would watch. Yeah, it's already up. Like, oh, it's okay. <laughs> Awesome, Doe. This has been a great conversation. Um, we're all very excited about what you guys are building, following the project closely. Um, and yeah, thank you for taking the time. It's been fabulous. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been fun. Yeah, thank you. Really enjoyed it. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.